you guys go ahead and uh, turn your Bibles to Galatians 1. We're going to be covering several verses today as we, uh, we lurch ahead in the study on Galatians. I don't know if you're there yet, but I already had my book marked. Maybe I had an unfair advantage. No, Barson newsletter. We're going we're gonna to read that together right now, starting in the second half of verse 16, where Bart left off last week. The Word of God says, I did not immediately consult flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now proclaiming the good news of the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your servant Paul and how he was the, the vessel that you chose to make this mystery come about where the Gentiles were brought into the kingdom. And Lord, we are generation upon generation that has benefited from that open door that you slung open with the death of Christ and his resurrection and ascension, where the veil was torn, Lord, and a new people was made. Um, those, who, those who are spiritually discerned, Lord, that we have been given regenerate hearts, that all the prophets of old looked into that mystery and tried to discern it but couldn't see it because they were shadows until the light of your Son came to the world. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that you in your mercy have given us something that we can trust and that we can bank on because you are the one who created everything and you have ownership over everything. And we know that you are true and just and that you cannot lie like a man. So Lord, we trust these words. Be with us as we examine them this morning. May they bring softened hearts and repentance and all of the spiritual good that your word is apt to do and it promises to do. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Human effort has really been the scourge of the church from really the beginning. The idea that there's a, there's a conflict in place between the will of man and the declaration and the sovereignty of God. And Bart talked about that last week, and it makes people very uptight when you talk about the doctrine of election. The idea being that God in his sovereignty chose those who he was going to, be, going to save, and that he did that strictly by his own good pleasure, that there was no amount of human will or human effort or human goodness that went into that decision by God. In fact, the doctrine of election, te election teaches that the only good that man has to offer is the good that is put into him by God when he is regenerated. This causes all kinds of confusion and all kinds of trouble because the doctrine of unconditional election is hateful to man. Because man, when we are born, we think that we are good. And it's hard to convince us otherwise because what we do constantly is we know our own intentions and we rationalize all of our sins and misdeeds based on our having good intentions. So it is 
a natural thing that when we are born that we think that the reason that, sure, God chose us, I can't argue that against Scripture. It clearly says that God chose us, that he foreknew us. But what we do is we look at that doctrine and we think, well, obviously, he looked down through the tunnels of time and he saw that I was going to be a good man, and so therefore he chose me. The problem with that theory is that I was not a good man, and that obviously God made a mistake there if he chose me because of my goodness. And we know that God cannot be wrong, that God is the holder of all the knowledge in the universe, that he created and stands over the universe. Human effort, the ability to please God for salvation with human effort, to formulate a message that appeals to people to draw them to God based on human effort, is maybe, it's got to be in the top five things that has plagued the downgrade of the church in America that has really made us turn to pragmatic ways to try to entice men to come hear the gospel. But if the gospel is based on men coming to seek it, then it is no true gospel at all. So many today who claim Christianity, they hope in their own profession, they hope in their own knowledge, their own religious affiliation, or their own morality. This in large part, this human effort to will these things into existence, if you've been around as a human being as long as I have, and some of you guys have not, and some of you guys have been around longer than I have as a human being, what you will find out is that human efforts fail time and time again. We can try as hard as we want. I can try so hard to not eat more ice cream, and yet I will eat too much ice cream. It's a funny example of how human effort falls all of the time. And so if salvation is based on human effort, then salvation is no salvation at all, and we are all doomed. If building the church is based off human effort, then the church is doomed and it will fail. But we stand here some 2,000 years after the greatest event in history where Christ died and rose again and ascended, and the church still goes. If it was based on the efforts of man, the church would have been gone a long time ago. But here we stand, and we stand because of the sovereign decree of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to work in lives. So we look for ways to draw people in with bouncy castles, with smoke screens, with loud music that appeals to the culture, with sermons on summer at the movies, with even with our more well-meaning brethren that have not given full-fledged into pragmatism with a gospel that says, you can choose God, please choose God today. And look, many are saved through those churches because we do choose God after he regenerates us. Because there is a convergence of human will with the will of the Father, but that's that, that God has to overwrite the human will. He gives us a new heart and then we choose him. And so when I think back to being a seven-year-old boy sitting at the, the banks of my grandma's pond in Van Buren or Cedarville, and my mom sitting there while we were fishing, and she asked me, she said, do you, do you know who Jesus is? And I said, yeah, Jesus died for our sins. And she said, are you a sinner? And I said, yeah, I sin. And she said, did you know that your sin is going to send you to hell if you don't trust in Christ. And it was that day on the banks of that pond that I chose Jesus. But I can tell you with absolute certainty to this day that God chose me before I chose him. Because I remember distinctly as a seven-year-old boy 
the moment when the stone of my heart melted and flesh, the heart of spirituality and the soft heart that understood the things of God was put in me. And that's the reason I stand here today, because my Christian profession is not based on my effort. It's based on something that God did. So Paul is going to cap off his argument in chapter 1, talking about the origin of the gospel, the nature of human effort, and his own bona fides to be able to be a preacher of this gospel to the people in Galatia. This is a three-point sermon. I've assured my wife that this one is pretty clean and quick. I'm already a little over time on the introduction. Sorry about that. I've got three points. The third one is, is quick. The first one is the longest, as is my doom, I think, as a pastor. Point one is man's Pharisee versus God's apostle. We have, to, we have to look back a little bit and look at what is going on in Galatia. Just to remind you, we always have to look at the books in context. What's going on is that a group of spiritually-minded men who seemingly were spiritual gurus called the Judaizers were coming in and bothering the churches in Galatia, and they were following Paul around everywhere. And what they were saying is, this Paul, he's, he's preaching one thing to you guys as Gentiles and another thing to the Jews. He's a populist preacher. And what you need to do, Christians, is that, hey, it's good that you believe in Christ and all that, but God has always required his people to be circumcised. Always. And so what you need to do if you want to be right with God is you need to, sure, trust in Jesus, but you need to also be circumcised. And so Paul, we look, appreciate the Galatians' problem here, okay? Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was the true Israel. He's the culmination of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. He did not come to destroy the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it and complete it. And the Old Testament lives for us today in perfect clarity because of Jesus Christ. That it's no longer shadows and types for us. It's fully illuminated through the work of Christ. But the Galatians, this was a tricky thing because they thought forever God's people would be circumcised. That's how you came into the camp. And so this message of being circumcised bothered the Galatians. It was putting people on edge, and it was worrying them. And what Paul comes in is like no pastor that I can imagine today. He comes in and says, anyone who preaches to you a gospel other than faith alone, given by grace, anyone who tells you that you need to be circumcised to be right with God, he should be damned to hell. Can you imagine today? That's what Paul did. He came in and he said that. Let anyone who preaches this other gospel be anathema. You're cast out into the gloomy darkness. Whoo, Paul. He's going to go further as the book goes on. But here we find our point. And we look at what Paul is going to do is really in a master class. He's going to show the absolute insanity of the arguments of the Judaizers. Because what the Judaizers have been doing is they've been saying, look, this Paul, he's getting a watered-down version of this gospel from the other apostles. They've taught him, but he's lesser than them, and now he's come in, and he's given you kind of like the watered-down, weak version of it. He's messed up their message. He's doing something different. He's gaining his power through duping you guys. And what Paul is going to do here in this section is he says, essentially, what I have done here is thrown all the worldly accolades that I could have ever gotten away. I've, thrown, I've made a really bad career move. That's what Paul did. He made a really terrible career move. So let's look back at it. Paul had spent 
five years of his life under the instruction of Gamaliel. Now, if you don't know about Gamaliel, Gamaliel is considered the greatest of the Jewish rabbis. He's one of seven that has been given the title through history of rabbin. He's considered, he was, he was the greatest thought leader of his time in the tradition of the Hillel. He was, in fact, the grandson of Hillel, and this was one school of thought. So the Pharisees had a schism in the first century, and one school was emphasizing the traditions of the Pharisees as how we be right with God and how we run things the right way. But then there was another side that was emphasizing the law itself and diminishing tradition. Gamaliel was on the side of the tradition, and his side was winning. He was the power broker. In fact, Gamaliel from the first century, his writings still exist today in the Talmud. He was the Jew of Jews. Paul was his underling. It would be kind of like sitting under a president as his right-hand man or chief of staff and saying, man, I'm, I'm an up-and-comer in the political scene. All the power, all of the power was where Paul was at positionally. There could not have been a more sure rise to power than what Paul enjoyed under the tutorship of Gamaliel. In fact, Paul was zealously following the law, zealously defending the law against this Christian way. He was persecuting the church, and he was glad to do it because what he saw himself as doing was lopping off this dangerous sect and heresy that was coming against the traditions of the Pharisees. So Paul, as a man, was rising quickly through the ranks, and he was on pace to be the greatest Jew. He was on pace to have all of the halls of power, all of the money, all of the riches, all of the influence, all of the power that goes with it. And then Paul saw Jesus. And what Paul did, like so many of us have done, is he threw away everything that he was when he saw Jesus. And Jesus said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? See, Paul thought in his own flesh, in his own zealousness for the, for the Jewish tradition, he thought that he was doing God a favor by getting rid of this sect. But when he saw Jesus, he tied up all these career aspirations in a bag and he threw them away. And he would later say that all of this stuff he accounted as being rubbish. It was garbage. Sometimes one, one place in the Greek he calls it skubalon that was famously used by Pastor Jeff Durbin one time. That, that word means excrement, okay? Excrement. That's what Paul regarded his whole former life of being. We, we have a hard time imagining this, okay? Imagine that you have risen all the way through the ranks, and you're the CEO of a company, or you're the CFO. You're the next one in line. You're about to be the big dog, and you throw it all away to join this sect that has no power at all, that in fact is being persecuted by the power structure, being put to prison, being put to death, that's this tiny, tiny little group of people that has the whole weight of the Roman Empire against them and the whole weight of the Jewish Sanhedrin against them, all the power structure of the Middle East against the Christians, and you throw that away and you join that side. That's what seeing Jesus does. Understand that we don't choose Christ no more than Paul did. Jesus came and knocked him down and changed his heart and blinded him. And Paul, therefore, gets a little hot under the collar when these people go around saying, well, you're just making up a gospel. You're just figuring this out on your own. You're taking a watered-down version of what Peter and James are preaching, and you're just rolling with it. 
And so Paul is going to refute that, and he's going to bring in evidence to a court case. And the reason I know this is because of the oath that looms very important in verse 20. So I want you to frame it this way. What Paul is going to do is he's going to lay out the evidence for how he did not receive any of this teaching from man, but he was given it directly by God. That makes him an apostle on the same line as the 12 that followed Christ around. He is at the same level as them because he was taught by Christ individually for the same amount of time that they were. They walked with Christ's ministry for about three years. Paul was in the desert in Arabia for three years being taught by the Lord directly. This makes him an apostle of God. And so Paul's message can be trusted. He has no motive for using the message of Christianity to gain popularity or power. He had all of that and threw it away. Now for the next charge, that he has watered down a message that was given to the apostles. This is what he says. He did not consult with flesh and blood, meaning that he did not receive the message or the gospel or his teachings from other men. This recalls Matthew 16, 17, where Jesus answered and said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because... Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This was the confession that, where would you go? You are the, where would we go? You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus says that that confession did not originate from his heart. It originated from the Father via the Holy Spirit. The true confession of Jesus as the Christ and Son of God is always a work of the Holy Spirit. Always. Mankind has no use for declaring the kingship of God. They have no use for swearing loyalty to Jesus Christ because to swear loyalty to Jesus Christ is to die to self. And one thing that I can assure you human beings don't want to do is die to themselves. We want all about ourselves. We don't want to die to ourselves. So here's the deal. He did not consult with flesh and blood, and we know because we get a little of the story. In Acts 9, we get the story of Paul's conversion. It says that he was blinded, that Jesus told him, you are persecuting me. But the Lord said to Paul in verses, sorry, he went to Ananias. Ananias took him in and trusted God. God, Ananias had seen in a vision that Paul was coming to him and that he was going to need some help. He was going to need help because he was blind. All right, pretty hard to get around that way. And, And so Ananias takes him in and he says, but the Lord said to him, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, speaking to Ananias, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul suffered maybe as much as any mortal man ever has. And this was for several reasons. He suffered physically. He was left at sea. He was stoned. He was ultimately martyred. He was beaten. He was bitten by a poisonous snake. Basically, everything that could have gone wrong physically went wrong. He was weak physically. But also Paul suffered because he knew that he carried the past, a past of persecuting God's people. Paul also suffered because Paul never really had the home to go to. When he left Tarsus, he was on the road all the time. Can you imagine how difficult it was? Paul also suffered because he had a great love, a tremendous pastoral love for the churches that he had planted. And those churches would go wayward. And so we get the raw emotion of the book of Galatians is that Paul is struggling, that Paul is tortured in his soul, looking at these false teachers coming in and bothering the people in Galatia because he was going to be this chosen instrument. And God's sovereign will said 
that he was going to show Paul how much he must suffer for his name. How many of you guys want that to be the message about you from the Lord? I'm really kind of afraid to ask. I'm, I'm definitely afraid to point the finger at myself. Do I take it? Here's, here's where the human effort comes in, right? If you were to say, Josh, I'm going to show you how much you have to suffer for my name. I would think, Lord, please don't do that. But that's my human effort because you know what? The real answer, and I have this faith, the real answer is I would say, send me, Lord, because it's not my effort. Because the Lord gives grace for his people to do the job that he's called them to do. It's really that simple. It's not, it's not how powerful Paul is. It's how powerful God is and God's good pleasure to use him. So what does Paul do? He immediately preaches the gospel in Damascus. As soon as he's converted, he goes to Ananias, he gets his sight back, and he preaches the gospel in, in Damascus, which is really close to the area that we're talking about with Arabia. Some people think that he might have just been on the outskirts of Damascus because Arabia in this time would have included Syria and all of what we think of as the Arabian Peninsula. So he could have been way out in the desert. He could have been close to Sinai. He could have been right outside of Damascus. We don't really know. And the, and the Bible doesn't give us very much to go on here as far as where he is. But he's going to go into, the, into Arabia by himself. And he's going to be there for three years. Now, we don't know what happened there except for this. We know that Paul was taught and given by revelation everything that he needed to know to teach in his ministry, that he was given the gospel here. I don't know if he had visions like John and like the prophets of old, Isaiah and Ezekiel. I don't know if it was like that. I tend to think so. I think Paul was given visions, that he was given direct instruction, but I know also that he would have brought all of the scriptures out with him because they did have the Bible in the first century. It was called the Old Testament. So they, he had those scriptures out with him, and the Holy Spirit would have taught him all that he needed to know in the Old Testament that he already had. And I can just imagine Paul sitting out here by himself with these Old Testaments that he knew so well, better than any of us in here by far would know. And Paul is reading these Old Testament, and all of the things that he thought he knew are coming alive now because the Holy Spirit is giving him eyes to see these shadows being gone. And Paul sees the Old Testament in the light of the risen Christ, what an amazing thing. And this sets Paul absolutely on fire. Absolutely beyond belief on fire for the gospel. Because what he learns is he sees, hey, this study my whole life that I never could have orchestrated myself, that I was in all these positions. How did I get taught under Gamaliel? How did I grow up in Tarsus and have all of this access to these scriptures? How did I grow so wise and knowledgeable in the scriptures and yet miss it all? Because once he doesn't miss it, he becomes the one that gives us almost all of the linkage in the New Testament, where he teaches us how the Old Testament applies to Christ and how the Old Testament applies to us in its beauty. He did not consult with flesh and blood to get this. And so what's the point? The apostles didn't teach Paul the gospel. He hadn't even seen him. Three years of intense study, revelation. And then what's he do after that? He goes back to Damascus. And he starts preaching the gospel there, and it goes bad for him. All right, this is the section where we know he's preaching the gospel in Damascus, and the city gets really mad at him, and they're going to kill him. And so he gets lowered down with a basket outside the city walls and flees. And then on and on he goes. It's not, it's not for 14 to 17 years, depending on how you count it, before he ever even lays eyes on Peter or James. And then for a short time, as he goes up to Jerusalem 
preaching the gospel, and he meets with Cephas for 15 days. Now, I imagine that their conversations were very intense. But what Cephas saw, or Peter, was that God had obviously given a revelation to Paul because the stories matched. Why? Because they were based on the same scripture, because they were based on the same revelation, because Peter, who had been taught by Christ in the flesh walking around Judea, Paul has been taught in Arabia the same doctrine. And so it all meshes. It's all together. So when the Judaizers were claiming that Paul had broken from these teachings, the the fact is that Paul had never sat under them, but he agreed entirely with them. This is because God is not divided, because God's word has stood forever and will stand forever, and because in glory someday, saints, what we're going to do is we're going to recount the same word that was written so long ago. Because as the hymn says, we long to tell the story to those who know it best, seen hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. That's what we're going to be doing. Did you know in glory when we go to the promised land, that what we're going to be doing is recounting the same old story because the story never gets old. The story never loses its power. The story always grows us, challenges us, convicts us because it is the very word of God. He is our creator and sustainer. And so Paul tells them all this. He gives them the timeline. You say that I'm watering down the message from the apostles. Here's what I say. I went to Arabia for three years. I was taught it. I went across. I spent some more time in Damascus. And then eventually I made my way up to Jerusalem and I saw Peter for two weeks. And then I brushed up with James, who was the brother of Christ, not one of the 12. Why is that detail in? Because James was the most important person in the church of Jerusalem, which was a very large church. And so what Paul is doing here is he's showing us the way that the unity of the church is very important. Paul could have been seen as a threat, a big threat. Can you imagine Peter? He's like, I did, I did the time, man. Jesus forgave me in person. He, he, he forgave me for cursing him. I saw everything that Jesus did. Who are you, Paul? You were out trying to destroy us. That's not what happens because Christianity is not turf wars because it is a conquestorial faith where all of us are on the same team taking ground from the enemy. So Peter and James did not see Paul as an adversary to put in his place. They saw him as a fellow brother what they would extend the right hand of fellowship to so that he would advance the battle further than they could have ever dreamed because his call was to go to the whole world. Now, the Jews were important. The Jews were very important because they had the oracles of the faith and because it was the starting ground, because there was a foundation there, because they knew the Lord of the Old Testament. But for those who rejected him... They brought covenant-breaking curses on them. So Paul lays out his testimony, and he says, with an oath, he says, I'm not lying, and he invokes the Lord, and here's the idea. This is language in the Roman Empire of Paul saying, hey, I can go to trial on this. You can lay out your evidence, and I'll lay out my evidence, and I am confident that when we go to trial, that I would win the case because my evidence can be backed up by everyone who saw me in Damascus, in Judea, by Cephas, by James, and also by any passersby that saw me in Arabia. I am confident about my case, and your case is ridiculous. I did not receive this gospel from the other apostles, and I'm not watering down anything. Paul would never boast in his own abilities, he always boasted in 
the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever. This oath was important because this oath would have said, hey, may punishment and outcast come upon me if I can't prove my case. Paul is using the strongest language here. So here's what we can see, right? It's a, it's a huge part of Galatians chapter 1, this whole argument that there is no way that Paul got this message from the other apostles. And so for us this morning, we have to look at a couple of things, and really the point is going to be, why is that important for us? But I want to look first at what does an apostle of God do? So Paul threw off being a Pharisee of man, and he became an apostle of God. So what does an apostle of God do? Verse 21 says that he went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, not friendly territory. Cilicia was from the place where he grew up. It was from the same province. So he went back to his hometown. Do you think that might have been a little bit stressful for this Jew of Jews to go back here and start preaching this sectarian, the way, the gospel? Probably wouldn't have liked it very much there. And he says, And I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ. But only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now proclaiming the good news of the faith, which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. Could say they were glorifying God in him. Okay? Here's the idea. What does the apostle of God do? Well, apostle simply means an appointed messenger of God. So Paul was an appointed messenger of God who was given a divine statement, a divine message to go out and preach. There are no apostles today because none of us can say that we've gone out in Arabia and been taught by the Lord Jesus Christ for three years. The stories along those lines from guys like Joseph Smith, from guys like Muhammad, look, they were taught by somebody out in the wilderness, but one of them was a demon by name Moroni, and the other one was likely a demon who had some kind of name Allah attached to him, who was a false god. That's what these people did. There are no more apostles because the book of Hebrews tells us that that has ended, that Christ now speaks through his word, and this is his word that we have in full canon today, and it stands true. So what does the apostle of God do? And it's pretty easy. The apostle of God fearlessly goes out and he proclaims the message of God. Whether it was Moses, whether it was David, whether it was Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Haggai, any of them, they went out and they proclaimed the gospel. John the Baptist, Jesus himself, God's apostles go out and they proclaim the message of God. And so what is the message that Paul is proclaiming? That's the important part, right? The important part here is what is the message? The message is Jesus Christ is Lord and that there's only one way to him, and that the only way to him is by grace that gives faith. So everyone who bows the knee to Christ bows the knee to Christ because they have been given that faith through the grace of God. None of us, none of us deserves it. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning as your Savior, and you aim to follow his ways and his commands, that's a gift of God. It's not of your own doing, so you cannot boast. The apostle gives the message. He always does. And we know in the case of Jonah that one of the apostles does not give the message. Guess what happens? God elects to make him give the message anyway. There's no way around it. God's message will not be stopped. Paul says the gospel is unleashed elsewhere. He says that it's not restrained. 
Why? Because Jesus bound the strong man. Because the strong man cannot deceive the nations any longer. And because the gospel goes forth unbounded because God has declared it to his apostles who set it forth in the scripture that we read today. And it is the most attested piece of work in all of history. There's more manuscripts for the word of God and its authenticity than any other book of antiquity we have. If you want to read the musings of Marcus Aurelius, we have in some cases like one manuscript of selections of it. And no historian doubts the authenticity of Marcus Aurelius. We have hundreds of pieces of manuscript of the Bible. Hundreds. The Bible's true, period. The Bible's not been altered, period. The Bible stands alone as the most solid, most trustworthy word that's ever been put down on parchment and paper and now beaming through our screens. Glory to God through his appropriation of technology. What does the apostle of God do? He preaches that message everywhere he goes. And where does he go? Where the Lord leads him. And the Lord often led him into danger because Paul was set apart to suffer for Christ. So he preaches the gospel and he gets known to be a preacher of the gospel. And those who he used to try to put in jail, it was men of Cilicia who we know in Acts went to make a false claim against Stephen. They could not, they could not assault, they could not find a gap in the message that Stephen preached. So what they did is they went and they tried to spy out. That'll come in handy later in this book. They came and tried to spy out and instigate an insurrection against him to get him persecuted. And they ultimately succeeded, and they succeeded under the watchful eye and approval of this same Paul. But Paul, when he starts preaching this true gospel, the testimony goes out everywhere. And so what happens? Even the churches in Judea where he used to persecute them, they now glorify God because why? It's not because of Paul. They're glorifying God in Paul. The reason they're glorifying God in Paul, because in Paul we see the work of the Savior. That there is no one too far away. No one who's outside the bounds of who God can choose to elect to save. There is no one who has sinned too greatly. There is no one who's too far away from the grace of God. And so for us, we know people. We know people that do bad things. We know people that blaspheme the Lord. We know people who seem to be in error in everything they do. And we think to ourselves like Jonah, well, they're just too evil. We're out of here. But what we don't understand is what Paul did understand. Paul understood that he was that man. The people in Judea understood that Paul was that man. And so when Paul comes and preaches the very message that he would have approvingly killed someone for, it makes the people in the church of Judea rejoice. In short, here's what an apostle of God does, and it carries on to us today. One who is regenerated by God is not focused on self, but instead we zealously attempt to advance the kingdom through proclaiming the message of the good news. Paul evangelized just as all who truly love the Lord Jesus Christ will evangelize. So point one, from a Pharisee of man to an apostle of God. Point two, what does an apostle do? Point three, nice story, but how is this a sermon for us? I think there's three things that we take from it, and I think that they are in the text. So I invite you to look through and prove that I've not eisegeted here and run my own things into it. I think, number one, one thing we see here is that the message is, was, and always has been authentic. 
God does not change, he cannot lie, and he created and orchestrates everything for his maximal glory. This maximal glory, the maximum glory of God. Why does he save some and choose other to be his vessels of destruction? That's the central problem with unconditional election, is it not? That's our problem, right? To those who he's elected to save, glory to God. We're humble because we know why he chose us. Why did he choose us? His own good pleasure. Why did he choose Paul? So that Paul would suffer. But what about those he doesn't choose? What about those who are chosen to be vessels of destruction? Here's the thing. It's a hard word, Christian. But God's maximal glory, God's maximal glory is the maximum good for all of his creation. If you want to read more about that, Romans 9 through 11 is an excellent treatise on this idea of the potter and the clay. But here, here, I want you to see it this way. God, through his elect, shows his divine mercy, his divine forbearance, his divine forgiveness, his divine righteousness to give God's righteousness through his son to us. But with his vessels of destruction, God shows clearly his holiness his judgment, his righteousness to punish those who sin against him. And when we think, when we think God is not fair to condemn those vessels of destruction, then what we have done is we have elevated ourselves to being a judge and we've said that's not fair because it goes right back to the beginning of the sermon where humanity's greatest problem is that we think we are good and we are not good and we are certainly not righteous because Perfect obedience to God's law is the standard for righteousness. So the first time a three-year-old selfishly hits their sister, we are seeing that they are not righteous. It is a heavy thing. So what do we do? Here's what we know. We know that God is good. We know that he is merciful. We also don't know who a vessel of destruction is. And some of the greatest excesses of those who ascribe to the doctrines of grace is the fatalist idea to say, well, you know, God's going to choose who he's going to choose. What do we have to do with it? Arrogance, absolute arrogance. Because we've forgotten who we are. So what we have to do is we have to look at our friends and our family and everyone that we have come in contact with. And we have to think, just like Paul did. Did Paul go, well, I was chosen God's power, sovereignty to elect, I guess everybody else is going to figure it out when the Holy Spirit teaches them. No. What Paul does is he preaches, and he urges, and he goes into danger himself. Can you, can you imagine the insanity of that? If you thought it was all fatalistic determinism, why would you ever go into danger for those who are going to be chosen or not anyway? No, it's because the means that God uses is the proclamation of the gospel. And that's why we as Christians, that we can do that. And we should proclaim the gospel at all ignoring of the fear that can, can so bring us down and so bind us because we don't have to fear because we know that we have eternal life. We are bound for the promised land. Whether tomorrow or 40 years from now, we're bound for the promised land and nothing can stop that because Jesus said in John 6, no one is going, he's not gonna lose a single one. John 10, sorry about that. The maximal glory of God is the goodness for his creation. We have to believe that. For God to be glorified to the utmost is for creation to experience the most good. Point number two, the testimony of scripture, which is written in perfect consistency as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, is infallible, inerrant, and sufficient for all righteousness. 
The testimony of Scripture always came from God. And therefore, when we try to take it or leave it, add or subtract from it, trust or distrust us, trust it, it will inevitably laid out, it'll be laid out on the throne of God's judgment. Here's what we do. You have to get this. Either we trust in Christ for our righteousness, or we contradict the testimony of God in Scripture to build our own testimony to lay at the bench of Christ the judge with our eternal fate in the balance. Let me put it a simpler way. Either we trust what God has said in his word for our eternal salvation, and when we get to the judge, we plead on behalf of his work for us. Or we leave that aside and we develop our own testimony to bring before Christ the judge. And do you know what that testimony is going to be in some measure? To be reductionistic a little bit. Our testimony, when we leave the testimony of Scripture behind, what we will have to say is, Jesus, your blood was not enough for me. Look at the things I did. Judge me rightly. I will trample your cross under my feet because it didn't quite clear away enough. I had to do my own stuff to add to it. Please forgive me and pardon me. What is Jesus going to say to that? He's going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. We have to trust in Christ for our forgiveness. We have to trust in the testimony of Scripture because it's all we have. Number three, the people of God rejoice in the stories that God tells. We will relentlessly tell this story to everyone that we meet. We will seek people out. We will listen when they come to us. But the bottom line is that Scripture knows nothing of the man of God who does not loudly proclaim the good news of his kingdom through the cross of Christ. The brand of Christianity that invades America, the Bible knows nothing of that Christianity. The Christianity that Christ brought, the message of the gospel, is one that his people proclaim everywhere they go. And the reason we proclaim it everywhere we go is because it's life. So Christian, check your heart. If that's not what bubbles out of us, Jesus says that our mouth is filled with words that are the overflow of our heart. If the overflow of our heart is not the gospel, then what is it? What are we doing? I think we're tempted to think that gospel work comes from us. I think we're tempted to think that the church and the work of the church is carried out by our own determination. But all of this work is and always has been a work of the Spirit that's put into us. And it's working its way out because of what we are in Christ. Our goal is, therefore, to earnestly desire to do more of what we already are in Christ. Be what you are. And if you're not a Christian, cry out to God that he would save you. Because there is salvation today. There is salvation to those who seek. Because the reason they seek is because God has given them the heart to do so. And he loves those who diligently seek him. He honors those who diligently seek him. That is the essence and the substance of faith. And faith comes only from the Father's good pleasure. Let's pray. Lord, we are in your presence and thankful for the amazing work that you've done through the cross. Lord, that it was not a it was not a story that was built up by human beings, but it was your very word. From Genesis on to Revelation, 
Lord, your plan becomes progressively revealed and brought into glorious, dazzling sunlight in the Gospels and in the New Testament. Lord, we trust in your word. We know that you have provided the only way. So, Lord, I pray that as your people, that we would diligently proclaim it. Lord, I pray that if, if there are those who are not your people, that they would repent of their sins and that they would seek you and that they would find that you are a loving father who saves by his power, who saves to show his mercy and his good pleasure in saving sinners, Lord. We love you and we glory in your name. Amen.